0: Please remain standing as you're able. Let's join Jesus who two to three times a day would have recited this part of a Shema Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And then later he would add Leviticus 19, 18 and give us what is known as the great commandment. If you'll follow after me. Shema Israel. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai. Adonai, Han. Adonai Han. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This summer we're meeting Jesus in the various healing stories in the gospel. This is from the 7th chapter of Luke beginning in verse 1. When he had finished talking to the crowd who was le- who was listening, he returned to Capernaum. There was a centurion there who had a servant whom he valued highly but was sick and about to die. So he sent the elders of the Jews to Jesus to ask him to come and heal the servant. They came to Jesus and pleaded with him earnestly, This man deserves to have you do this, for he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. They were not far from the centurion's house when he sent friends to say to Jesus, Do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I did not come to you because I did not deserve to. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Under me, I say to this one go and he goes. I say to that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. When he'd finished Speaking, Jesus turned and was amazed at him and said to the crowd following him, Not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And the men, when they returned to the home, found that the servant had been healed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. This week I wondered, what does Jesus think of me? Well, I know Jesus loves me. I've known that song for years and years. But what does he think of me? Is he ever amazed? Amazement is an interesting word and concept that goes all the way through the Gospel of Luke. It starts in chapter 2 when Mary and Joseph proudly bring their baby boy to the temple and then we're told that they were amazed by the things that the prophet and prophetess said about Jesus. And then as he grows up and preaches his first sermon in Luke chapter 4, we're told that the people there were amazed. In chapter 5, the crowd and the disciples are amazed. And again in chapter 8 and 9, and you go all the way through, and then in chapter 24, the Gospel of Luke ends with the uh, men on the disciples on the road to Emmaus who are amazed by what has been told to them about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But only one time... In this gospel of amazement, do we ever find out that Jesus himself was amazed? That's here in Luke 7, verse 9. We're told that Jesus is amazed at the centurion's faith. Well, if that's the only time that we read Jesus amazed in the gospel of Luke, I believe Luke's inviting us to think about that for a few minutes. What is it that made this man's faith so amazing? And there are a number of things that scholars point out, and I think they're probably all accurate. The first one is this, that one of the things you'll notice about the centurion, who is a Roman, centurion means he has a hundred soldiers under him. He's from the occupying forces. He's from the uh, victorious uh, troops and culture. And yet he goes to the other side, to the Jews, to look for healing. He crosses barriers, and that's impressive. The humility of the centurion is also impressive. The last time we saw in the Bible that a mighty military figure had asked for healing, it was Naaman, the Syrian general in Second Kings 5, who had leprosy. And when he was told, well, just go bathe in the Jordan River, remember his response was, we got bigger rivers than that back home. Why did I come here? And he displays no humility in the, in the face of the prophet Elisha. And then there's the trust factor. Amazing what he says. He said, look, I know if you just say the word, Jesus, this thing will be done. The servant will be healed. But I believe the thing the Bible really wants us to zero in on this morning is this man's understanding of Jesus and his authority and how authority works. Apparently, he gets it and gets it in a way that nobody, even in Israel, gets the authority of Jesus had, how authority focuses in his life. Does Jesus ever see that amazement in, because of me? Is Jesus ever amazed at me? Um, after the 8.30 service, Donna Bellamy reminded me um, of something that's in the uh, Gospel of Mark, which is another time Jesus is amazed. He's amazed at people's disbelief. Would, would I amaze him with my disbelief? Would I amaze him with my unwillingness to take risks, to do things that I haven't done before, to step out of my comfort box? to be able to be a part of the power of Jesus exercised in this world? Would he be amazed by that? When I think about the risk the centurion took and the great thing that follows, and I look at my own life and see sometimes the risk is not there, I believe I understand that one of the problems is simply this. I do not understand authority the way the centurion does. I don't live under authority the way the centurion lived under authority. I don't recognize and serve authority the way the centurion recognized and served authority. Now, part of this, I mean, I come by honestly, right? I'm part of the Watergate generation, you know? And then I'm the one that learned not to trust the government and not to trust the church and not to trust the establishment. I'm part of the group that learned the important thing was to stick it to the man and always make sure you're never one of the suits. That's... That's the part of the people I'm, I'm from. But quite honestly, all of us, I think, have struggles with authority because we've all had bad experiences with authority. Experiences where our parents perhaps chose poorly or chose in a way that at the time we didn't understand. Teachers who, uh, who meant well doing their job but it came off wrong or administrators uh, perhaps oppressing us or the government ignoring us in some way. We've all had those experiences or we've had a bad boss. We've been the bad boss. So many reasons why we won't come to trust authority. I think in my own life, my wife's always amazed at how little I can remember of my childhood. But one of the clearest memories I have of my childhood is, is when I was eight years old. And I was in a classroom, and the teacher left the room briefly. And so a girl stood up, and at her desk, she had a whole sack full of candy bars, and she started handing them out. So I got in line. Well, I was last in line. So teacher comes back in the room, everybody has their candy bar, they've returned to their seat except me, like musical chairs, and I was left standing. Well, she goes off on me. I'm shamed that I would do something like that. And then she reminded me, and your mother's a teacher. Um, You know, as I grow, when you get older, you realize some of the stuff is just your interpretation. It's not really that bad. I mean... I understand teachers want to keep control of, his, of their classrooms. I get that. And I understand that 8-year-old boys like candy bars. You know, Nobody's wrong in this deal. It, it just happens. But I drew a conclusion. And then I go on to junior high, and it's also a clear memory that um, I was president of the student council, and I was in the breezeway before school, and one of the vice principals uh, comes by and um, grabs my hair, which is over my collar, in his hand, and he says, your long hair is a bad example to the rest of the students in this school, and you need to get it caught. Well, I remember being shocked that, that he would do that in public, and I was shamed. You know, my friends were standing around me, and I was puzzled because my parents let me have it, and aren't they on the same page with the principal? And I can get it. Now, I have to admit, years and years later, I'm actually quite proud to remember I had that kind of hair. <laughs> you know, that is the one thing I would go back to junior high for. The only thing be for the hair. Um, But experiences like that are part of our lives, and we give interpretations to them, and they, they lead us to be less than trusting of those in authority. I went on and got to where I couldn't trust people even in the church. My very first church, small town. The treasurer who kept the books worked downtown. Well, that was about a block away from where the church was. But he insisted twice a month that I come to see him to get paid. And then he might pay me or he might not depending on what he had going and how he felt that day. You see, he had this strange notion that pastors only work one day a week. And he really, quite frankly, didn't think we were worth getting paid. That We weren't really doing anything. So twice a month, every month, I watched him exercise poorly the authority the church had given him in my life. And then my very next church, my predecessor, a little bit like the Baltimore Colts, he just slipped out in the middle of the night and left all of his friends in the church stunned. And every single one of the friends he had, he had put on the personnel committee. So you can imagine my very first meeting with the personnel committee, they're all in grief, they're all in shock, they are not happy campers. And... uh and I, there's not really an agenda when we meet and we start to talk and and finally I start to explain who I am what I'm trying to do there and he stops me and said wait a minute David he said the important thing here is you need to know a lot of us don't like your personality <laughs> that's what the duly designated authorities in that church that's what they do and I began to perfect a method I learned earlier in life which was duck and cover and hide and put on the cloaking device and do whatever you can to do what you need to do, but without getting noticed, without raising the eyebrows or the attention of the authority. But one could not say I was under authority. Under means that you come and you lift them up, that you try to serve them and, and push uh, the agenda that God has given them forward before you do your own. But I was the other way, and I wasn't alone. My good friend and Scott Hare, uh, colleague Scott Hare was right there with me. Uh, we made a request when my middle son went to Disney um, Land one uh, spring break. We asked him to bring back a pirate flag. And we took the pirate flag, some of you may remember it, and we put it in my office. And we saluted it regularly. And we said that we're going to do by God what we think we're supposed to do and not what everybody else thinks we're supposed to do. And one of the ways I would talk to the pastors I would when they would talk about things and we'd do something, even when it was good, I was like, but, but don't let the superintendent, don't let the bishop know. And we borrowed a phrase from Star Wars. We said, we must learn to avoid imperial entanglements. So whatever we did, and we did some pretty interesting stuff around here. We did it without anybody knowing about it for the longest time. Sometimes even you. But it was all because that was our understanding. Authority was not to be trusted. But here's the problem. When you don't live under authority, then you don't exercise authority. Now, I think there are sometimes there are good reasons for that. I mean, with the experiences I've had in authority in life and that you've had it, I mean, the last thing you want to be is that guy or that gal who exercises authority improperly. So your shields are already up and, and for years you couldn't count on me to step in in a situation that was a little sticky. And say, this is how to be or this is how it won't be because I didn't want to be that person. But also you couldn't count on me because I didn't have authority to do it. Enough authority because I was my own authority. And you can only go as high as the authorities you serve. And if you serve yourself, that's the bar. You cannot go any higher than what you can do and what you can think of on your own and what you can pull off. That's it. And that's not enough authority, I want to tell you, to get what God wants done in this world. You don't exercise authority because you won't live under authority. And it's a bad situation all the way around. I remember the pastor of the world's largest church uh, taught me something very important about 15 years ago. His name is uh, David Cho, pastor in Seoul, South Korea. At the time when this took place, they had 600,000 people. In their church. Just, that's a thousand more than what we have. Remember? A thousand times more. I mean a thousand times. Excuse me. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Um, Jesus would be amazed. Um, and they're running out of land. But he knows no, no bank's going to talk to a church about that kind of money. So he goes to the bank, but he doesn't even make an appointment because he doesn't want him to know. And he goes into the bank president's office, outer office, tells the secretary he'd like to see the president. She said he's in, he's busy. And, but then she you know, notices his bearing, and she said, but shall I, can I tell him where you're from? And he said, yes, I come from highest authority. Well, she buzzes the president of the bank. He thinks the president of South Korea him somebody to see him. So he quits what he's doing, sends somebody out, lets this guy in. And he says, oh, so you're from the president? And he said, no, I'm from God. (laughs) And when the guy recovers, they talk about a loan. And the church moves forward. They've got more than a million and a half, I think, today. Um, But he knows his authority. You can only go as high as the authority you're under. And if you won't be under authority, you're limited. And I was limited And no one's amazed except amazed at what doesn't happen in a church. Didn't we inherit a tradition of healings and power and life change and uh, helping the poor and the oppressed? is not that our tradition? Where'd it go? Well, it went away when we decided we would serve only ourselves. Now, let's be honest, we're all Protestants. That's our DNA. We don't serve anybody but Jesus, we think. Just go straight to me and Jesus. Think how we got here. The American Methodists split from the British Methodists, who split from the Episcopalians, who split from the Catholics. I mean, do you see the pattern? Nobody is under anybody's authority. We all just go and do what seems right to us in our relationship with God. It's a wonderful notion, but it's just not biblical. Biblically, God gives us governments. God gives us fathers and mothers. God gives us spiritual authorities. And we lift them up as they serve God. And we move further into God. That's what Jesus did, into God's purposes. This is what Jesus said in the Gospel of John about himself. He said, I can only do what I see the Father doing. I'm like, really? You're Jesus. Can't you just do whatever you want? No. Because he's under authority. But how many limitations does the Father of the universe have? So when you're under him, it's limitless. Jesus lived that kind of limitless life because he put himself under the one who had no boundaries. Well, what does it mean on Father's Day? Let me try to bring it in. Years ago, about 15 I think, psychology today, under the then editor Sam Kane, polled their readers to find out uh, a, a number of things, and this one thing is they found out: 95% of their readers who claim to be atheists, who claim to be atheists, also claim to have no relationship with their earthly father. You see where this goes? When we get out from under that, then we're our own God, and atheism and powerlessness will. That's just inevitable. It's a logical result. So, first thing, I would encourage you on this Father's Day is that part of living under authority is to honor the authority of your father and mother. If they're still living, you care for them. The Jews, many of them, consider that the central of the Ten Commandments is number five because any society that doesn't honor their father and their mother will not be here for the long haul. It just simply won't work. Are they still alive? How can you honor them? How can you help them? Um, If they're not, how can you honor what they've left you? If they were less than perfect, and I'm pretty sure they were, because none of us are perfect parents. We're good enough parents. Have you forgiven them? For your own imperfect parenting, have you forgiven yourself? We won't step under authority until we get clear about authority ourselves. That it's not always exercised appropriately. That mistakes are made and, well, that's, that's okay. We can get over those mistakes. So the first thing is simply fathers and mothers. You're, don't be perfect. Just be the people God's called you to be. And forgive your parents when they weren't. Here's the second thing. You need, in as best a way as possible, to come under the earthly authorities that God has given you. Not just biological, but spiritual, even at work, if your boss is not asking you to do something unethical, then how can you serve him or her? How can you be the employee of the month, metaphorically, to come under that authority and to serve, and to serve the spiritual authorities that God has placed in your life, the Sunday school teacher, um, the spiritual mentor that God has given you. As you get under them, you get some of their authority and they get authority and then eventually we have the Father's authority and I assure you things will happen. It is only by coming under earthly authority that you will ever come under the Heavenly Father's authority. It just doesn't work otherwise. And here's how it worked for me. First thing when I realized this, when when this came to my understanding, uh, and Scott Hare, by the way, who, uh, who, who started to come under authority before I did, taught me this lesson. Um, first thing is that I had to go to my own father. I'm not a bad son, but my father was 150 miles away. And he was shielding a mother that had Alzheimer's and trying to keep it from us. And so contact was not always long or deep. And I had to make the decision to go long and deep. And so I did to reconnect with my father in, in uh, uh, more profound ways. I had to go to the bishop and the superintendent that God has placed over me in the Methodist Church and and said to both of them, I will do whatever you ask me to do, unless it's immoral or unbiblical. You can count on me. That has ended me up with uh, two or three committees for the bishop. One of them was, and some of you know how much I love committees, one of them was like three days a month for a year. But he asked me, so I did it. Superintendent, at last count, my offer to him has cost us about $43,000. But I'm telling you, when you tell them that, they're stunned because they're used to working with people who don't understand authority, like the centurion. And so by the time the bishop gets up off the floor, after a while, they come to believe that you are there them. So that's how it's gone in my life. And then there are people around here that God has put as spiritual mentors over me, who've encouraged me in times of discouragement, who've saved me from train wrecks. And and I have to look for ways, even if it's just to open the door for them, or to seek them out and thank them. I look for ways to come under them as well. And in doing these things, I begin to find myself more and more under the Father's authority, and things start to happen. Because no longer am I limited by my authority. It goes past it. I'm reminded of a movie probably none of you saw. It had very little dialogue. Uh, uh, more than 20 years ago, it was called The Bear. And it was about a cub who gets orphaned, a bear cub. And a, an older grizzly befriends him. And it follows their adventures as they try to escape um, hunters and, uh, and other wild animals. And, and the grizzly takes the orphan under, um, uh, under his wing and fathers him. But toward the end of the movie, they get separated. And the young bear cub is face-to-face with a cougar that means to do him great physical harm. And so the bear cub does the thing that the fathers taught him to do. And he stands up as tall as he can and lets out a roar. And the cougar turns and gets out of dodge. The cub can't see it. But in the camera, we can see it. What has happened is the grizzly father has come back into the picture. And when the little one is standing up, roaring his little roar, the big one is behind him standing up, roaring his roar. And the cougar leaves. We are a people that were meant to roar at poverty. We were meant to roar at loneliness. We are meant to roar at sickness. We are meant to roar at disease. We are meant to roar at broken relationships. And we can do that and stand up because behind us is a bigger roar. And when we roar together, the results are nothing short of amazing.